Hi, I'm Martina Rotolo and this is Progressing Planning, a podcast series on the role of planning in fostering change in contemporary society. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Romola Sagnal, Associate Professor of Urban Geography at the London School of Economics. We will discuss her research on urban displaced populations and refugees. In particular, we will be talking about urban humanitarian policies to support displaced people in cities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Romola. My first question is, why is urbanization important for thinking about displacement? Um, so I just want to start out first, Martina, by thanking you for having me on this podcast. Uh, it's really nice to be able to talk about these issues. Um, and then I'm going to go on to answering your question. Um, so it's an interesting question you ask of like why urbanization is important for thinking about displacement. Um, I think that my answer to this would be two part. The first is that it's because displacement itself is becoming increasingly an urban issue. So when we are looking at people who are displaced due to conflicts, um, war, um, persecution, uh, other kinds of disasters, um, they are increasingly moving into cities. Um, and what we have in terms of statistics is that over 60% of refugees live in towns and cities. And that is an important number or an important percentage to consider, given that what we have today are unprecedented numbers of displaced people. According to the UNHCR, we have almost 80 million people who are displaced today worldwide, which is of historic proportions. And we're effectively looking at more than half those people who are living in towns and cities. The second issue is in relation to that, which is that because of this mass displacement, cities themselves are being transformed as a result of them. So this is particularly the case in the global south, where um, the, there's a disproportionate uh, impact of displacement. So what we see in the Global South is not just that this is uh, where the majority of the displacement takes place, but also that the majority of displacement is contained within the Global South as well and managed within the Global South as well for geopolitical reasons. And so cities and urbanization processes in the Global South are very significantly impacted by displacement as well and in more so in certain parts of the world than others. And this affects not just planning there, but also infrastructure, intercommunal relations, and so forth, urban politics, and so on. So this question of displacement is a very important part of the urban question, and it's increasingly becoming so. Now, I want to make one more point over here, which is that we tend to sort of talk about this issue of the urbanization of displacement as if it's something new. And I want to again highlight this point that this movement of people into cities is not something new. It is something that has happened 
for a very long time um, that there's been a history of people li moving into cities, living in cities, cities being crafted out of displacement. What we are seeing today perhaps is more of a policy response to this at an international level, uh, more attention given to it by humanitarian organizations rather than perhaps the process itself as being something new and novel. This is very interesting. And um, I think that your study on urban humanitarian policy in Lebanon raises very interesting question as well on how humanitarians learn urban work and how their interventions can challenge urban spaces conceptualization. What does neighborhood approach mean for urban humanitarian responses? Um, so thank you for that really interesting question. Um, so what we're seeing in much of the world as refugee crises both happen in and affect urban areas is this kind of urban turn in humanitarian work. So one of the ways in which humanitarians intervene is through area-based and neighborhood-based approaches. And these have become more common in the last decade or so, and I've been studying them over the last several years. What effectively we see is humanitarian organizations carving out particular areas in the city where they think that they can intervene, where there may be high concentrations of displaced populations. And as part of their interventions, they may do a range of different things. So they might upgrade houses, they might improve uh, street infrastructure, such as lighting or um, the sort of uh, pathways and, and um, parks and, and so forth. And they do this so that uh, many of the neighborhoods where there are high numbers of displaced people um, that are already facing infrastructure problems or are overcrowded and uh, are facing pressures from displacement can be supported through humanitarian work. So this is becoming, as I said, quite uh, becoming more widespread because humanitarians are trying to figure out ways of intervening in urban areas that are meaningful interventions that attend to the needs of local populations as well as displaced populations, support them equally because you simply cannot ignore local populations who may be extremely um, poor or may be facing all kinds of um, issues uh, of marginalization while supporting uh, displaced people alone, because that can lead to all kinds of tensions between different groups of people. So this becomes one of the ways in which they do that. Um, it's not without um, shortcomings, of course, and it also becomes difficult in terms of funding because donors uh, often can be quite uh, reluctant to fund urban interventions and these kinds of interventions because they don't target just displaced communities. So it becomes quite difficult to demarcate between different populations of people. Um, funding may fluctuate, so that might also affect these operations which are, that really require more long-term interventions. I mean, these are not things that can be done overnight because you need 
not just an assessment of areas and needs, but also the creation of communities that can work with organizations to implement many of these projects and so on. So um, it can, uh, so it's, it's, the neighborhood approach is probably going to change a lot of the ways in which humanitarian work is carried out in the future, particularly in urban areas. Um, and it's, it's a kind of an experiment, I would say, that humanitarians are engaging in and trying to figure out new ways to intervene in urban areas as they sort of expand their urban toolkits. So you explained the challenges that uh, the neighborhood approach may have in terms of funding and so on and so forth. But what challenges displacement of urban humanitarian response displays on urban planning? And how we can think about these questions when we engage in planning practice or research? Um, this is a really, really important question, I think, for many of us who are interested in these kinds of questions around planning, but also at the same time um, are grappling with these kinds of issues around disasters and so on that are becoming so widespread across the world. And I think these are kinds of questions that planners need to engage with much more seriously going forward um, because of climate change, because of increases in conflict and uh, other kinds of natural disasters. That if we don't think about what the impacts of that are on urban environments and how mass displacement affects um, planning and urbanization, uh, we would be doing ourselves as a profession um, a disservice. Now, that said, um, I think from what I have learned so far, it's, it's a multi-dimensional uh, challenge. So, as I had mentioned in the beginning, that much of the displacement happens in the global south and is managed in the global south. So when we talk about the urbanization of displacement, yes, we are seeing that very much in the global north as well, in many cities in Europe, for example. But the majority of this issue is managed within cities in the global south. Now, one thing that a lot of organizations talk about is the dearth of data for a lot of cities in the global south that are hosting large numbers of displaced populations. I mean, the, the dearth of data is something that happens with a lot of cities anyway, but this when since we are talking about this displacement issue, I think this becomes another important question, uh, another dimension to this problem. If you don't have data, you don't know what you're, you're supposed to be um, addressing as a problem, right? Um, and it becomes a challenge for humanitarians to figure out um, what needs there are and how they can support people without that kind of data. So if they don't have information about how many, you know, what the demographics are of a city, um, what the services are, what the infrastructure is, so forth, um, and then they also are lacking the data on, on displacement, it makes it quite difficult for them um, to undertake their, their operations and, um, and sort of work to implement projects in, in urban areas. So the data question is, is one aspect. 
Um, there are politics questions around this. Um, a lot of uh, the local governments have particular responsibilities towards local communities and populations. They're elected to support um, their constituents. When we have mass displacement in many areas, there's a lot of antagonism between um, local communities and um, displaced communities, especially as crises become protracted. So as you know, when they become, uh, when they sort of become longer and longer, the pressure on people, on local environments, municipalities increases. And this increases tensions between people as well. Um, so this question of supporting displaced populations can become politically quite challenging for local authorities as well. They also may be faced with limited powers to do so. So for example, in many countries, decentralization processes might be rather limited or incomplete. So whatever powers a municipality has is rather limited and, and what they can and cannot do um, is circumscribed by that uh, what power they are given. So those are kinds of um, challenges that um, are sort of faced at the, at the municipal um, and local levels, which then affect these kinds of questions around planning as well. Um, so on the one hand, displacement affects the planning of cities because it puts pressure on infrastructure, so on and so forth. And when displaced people are not included in the census or in statistics, of local areas, it becomes quite difficult uh, to plan ahead, um, and if, you know the infrastructure and so forth for these kinds of places. Um, and then what you have is because of these kinds of differences in uh, the the priorities of humanitarian organizations who are really, at the end of the day, they are meant to be short-term relief organizations. They are not meant to be working for very long periods of time. Um, and they have a very particular priority, which is driven very much by donor politics. Um, so they have, they have their priorities on the one hand, which is about supporting displaced people, and local authorities have their priorities, which is about supporting uh, local communities and, and um, ensuring that they have the access to the services and infrastructure and so on that they need. And they don't necessarily um, come together in uh, quite such easy ways. So that kind of coordination can become quite tricky and there are a lot of uh, sort of issues that I have seen in, in the research that I've done with various organizations on this. Uh, the kinds of tensions that can arise as a result of that. Um, but, the, but for me, the, the more interesting thing is that what we have here, again, coming back to this point about humanitarians, um, kind of their mandate really being short-term relief work, is that they're increasingly shifting over to this sort of long-term development slash urban work and trying to do effectively what would be considered planning work. I mean, they're intervening in, in neighborhoods and trying to upgrade neighborhoods so that um, host and displaced communities can be equally supported. Um, this is, th these are sort of complex, ex complex exercises. And um, 
I am not entirely convinced that most humanitarian organizations and individuals are well equipped to understand the intricacies of urban systems. Um, in my interviews with people, I've had many people uh, complain about um, sort of uh, the complexity of urban environments, of urban governance, and so on, and it, they just find operations a lot easier in camps. Um, and you know, they recognize that urban environs are in urban planning is much more systems based. It's not sort of project based in quite the same ways as humanitarian work is. Um, and there's very limited sort of understanding of how planning works and how the profession works or even how cities work. So I think that for humanitarians to engage in these kinds of planning exercises um, without sort of meaningful engagement with the planners in many cities or with the planning, with planning as a profession itself can be um, uh, somewhat uh, questionable. And it can raise these kinds of questions of, around equity. Um, you know, if you intervene in one neighborhood because there's a lot of displaced people there, what happens to the neighborhood next door, which might be deprived but doesn't have as many displaced people? Maybe they have quite a few, but not as many. Um, you start to create these uneven urban environments. Uh, are you coordinating with the local authorities to um, implement these? Are your projects working with governance issues in, in, the, in these cities? In many cases, these interventions in informal areas can be quite um, controversial because many local authorities don't want interventions in urban area, in informal areas because it legitimizes them. But most of the displacement happens in there. So there are all kinds of interesting issues that come up around urban planning. Like what, what should the, the relationship between, be between humanitarians and planners? How much planning should humanitarians learn? Um, should humanitarians be doing this kind of work that really is planning work at the end of the day? How can they intervene in planning air in, in cities to do this kind of work when they don't have the data to do it? So there's lots of different ways in which this question of planning becomes central to humanitarian work in urban areas. Thank you, Romola. You really gave us a sense of the complexity of the issue of displacement in uh, urban areas and especially in relationship with the urban planning profession. But moving to um, the book that you recently edited, Displacement Global Conversation on Refuge, together with Silva Pasquetti, it brings together conversation from the Middle East, Europe, and South Asia about forced displacement of refugees, crossing several disciplinary boundaries, ranging from architecture, planning, geography, and urban ethnography. How has this book expanded the boundaries of refugee studies? Um, I'm not sure I would be bold enough to say that it has expanded the boundaries of refugee studies. Um, I think I, I would take a, a humbler approach um, Sylvia and I really came to, into this project because we had been working in different parts of the world. I had worked in the Middle East and South Asia. She's worked in the Mediterranean and in Palestine. And we had been familiar with much of the work in refugee studies. And we were intrigued by the fact that um, 
a lot of the work that we were exposed to in our research over the many years um, were, was very much sort of siloed by region, for example. So it's not uncommon to hear displacement scholars or refugee studies scholars talking about their country is unique because dot, dot, dot. Um, every country is unique in, in how they handle these questions of displacement. And it's not just countries. I, I've been alluding to this as a scalar question. So, um, you know, cities will handle these questions differently. Neighborhoods will handle these questions differently. So difference operates everywhere. Um, but what becomes interesting is, at least for us, we, we, there, there are many handbooks on, on displacement and so on. But what we really wanted to do was sort of get people to step outside of their regional specificities and talk across global boundaries to each other to begin to sort of think about how some of these questions um, are global in nature. Um, and it's not just about, you know, what happens within your specific context, but how that relates to context everywhere else. And again, it's this kind of call to sort of think about bigger questions around social justice and so on that we think can only happen through transnational conversations. The other thing that we wanted to do was sort of move beyond very specific uh, conceptual frameworks that have driven much of the research on refugees and displacement over the many years. So, for example, most people who work on displacement and forced migration will inevitably turn to work on bare life, on exception, these um, kind of uh, conceptual work done by people like Giorgio Agamben, Hannah Arendt, Carl Schmitt, so forth. And that's not to say that, that these concepts do not have purchase within, um, within these discussions. They certainly do. But what we find interesting is that, you know, we, we are also urban scholars, and we've seen how urban scholarship draws on so many different um, fields of research, so many lines of thought. And we wanted to bring that kind of theoretical diversity into dis like displacement discussions, discussions around forced migration, and so on. So we wanted to think about sort of more deeply around these questions of race, of thinking about um, urbanization, um, thinking about welfareism, all of these kinds of questions, like how do we sort of step outside of some of these uh, more commonplace theorizations of displacement and maybe expand the horizon <laughs> of theory uh, within displacement uh, literature and research. So that's really what our aim was in this book. And I think, I hope that we've, we've succeeded in doing some of it. I mean, if we can, um, if you know some of these conversations can continue on after this book, we would be very happy with that. Yeah, in the book you also explained that there is a need for decolonizing refugee studies. What does that mean in practice? What should we focus to build up post-colonial approach to refugee studies? Um, 
we've been we've been thinking about this again for a while because um, we have been uh, separately we've been kind of doing different work on on looking at decolonization uh, both within geography and and, uh, and elsewhere um, when we were kind of thinking about this this work on decolonizing uh, refugee studies again it comes back to some of the points that I had raised earlier which was that a lot of the theories that are used to kind of talk about refugees and displacement and so on seems to come from Western tradition. So it comes from, again, these philosophers like Agamben, who sort of looms large in the field of refugee studies and so on. And again, that's not to say that um, that these kinds of theories are not important in, in displacement. But there are other ways of conceptualizing many of these issues. Like, why do we not use some of the terms that people use within these context, contexts and theorize from there? So, uh, you know, what are some of the vernacular terms that people use who are displaced themselves? Um, and, you know, how can we use that to, to think more critically about these issues around displacement? Um, uh, uh, there's, uh, you know, in 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 uh, in a lot of the work on Palestine, for example, uh, Palestinians tend to use this term sumud, which uh, refers to steadfastness. This is something that can be talked about in in much more rigorous conceptual ways to actually think about displacement in in uh, in these ways and move beyond sort of agamben to kind of think about these um, other ways of of how people theorize. Um, their their conditions, the same kinds of um, things that come out of um, contexts like India, where I've, where I've worked as well. Um, uh, currently, we are trying to think about this idea of dignity. How do people use this idea of dignity to um, position themselves and think about their um, living conditions and so on? And how does that idea of dignity, like how do people sort of uh, what are the vernacular terms for that for that particular word and and what does that what do those terms mean in these different contexts so that's one of the ways in which we're kind of thinking about this this um, issue around decolonization because we think that um, it's really important for us to sort of move beyond western sort of theories of um, of displacement and to think about other ways in which we can imagine how people narrate their own life worlds. Um, and I think that, that that becomes a really important way of also thinking about power relations in terms of research um, in, in this field as well, um, because there are those on whom the research is done, and then there are those who, who are in the position to do that kind of research as well. So are we listening carefully to those um, who are in uh, sort of who are displaced and who are in these positions and are we talk are we engaging with them as co-producers of knowledge rather than simply narrators of these stories
Thank you for listening to this episode to Dr. Romola Sanyal for talking to us. For more information, you can visit our blog at blog.lsc.ac.uk slash progressing planning. We want also to thank the Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund at LSE for sponsoring this episode. Next episode, we will be talking with Jesse Spear, Assistant Professor in Human Geography at the London School of Economics. See you soon.